Amen. So the last few weeks, uh, Josie has been learning to make pancakes, okay? Uh, when one of your kids wants to help make dinner, we, I don't know if you do this, but we eat breakfast for dinner probably at least once a week because as your pastor, I affirm this habit to every family. <laughs> eat breakfast for dinner at least once a week. Anyway, not in the text, but that's, that's extra. The desire, uh, though, to help is admirable, but the reality, as you know, parents, is uh, that it makes it more difficult oftentimes, at least at first. And if we lose track of our purpose, that we're not just trying to get through dinner tonight, but that we're trying to raise a girl to be a woman and a wife and a mother, to, to, to grow into an, an adult, then you know, we might just say, you know, forget it. I don't want to deal with eggs on the counter. I don't want to deal with shells in the batter. I don't want to deal with, you know, pan, you know, and as you learn to flip the pancakes, the batter gets everywhere and that's going to make it harder to clean the griddle. And, you know, there's all these things that, that go into it, right? In the short term, it's always more of a mess. It always takes longer. It's a risk, but you, you do it anyway. And then, you know, and the next time she helped make pancakes, you know, she cracked all the eggs just fine. The next time, her, her flipping improved. And, you know, just this week, she made pancakes, and it was really, you know, she's pretty self-sufficient. Pretty good pancakes. And in the long run, when I'm old and gray, and she's caring for me, and I want pancakes, I'll be glad that she knows how to make pancakes, Right? Like, honey, can you make me some of those pancakes? Thanks. It'll be worth, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. And today's messes, while we'd love to avoid them, will be worth it if they are directed towards where God commands. You see, we like to think of our Christian lives and our churches as being you know, more nice and tidy than they really are. You know, you open up your children's storybook Bible and everything is simple and clear cut and there's just not, like all the messes are taken out of the stories, right? But throughout scripture and throughout church history, what we see is that God's people, they get off track and getting back on track is often messy. They get off track and that makes a mess and getting back on track makes a different mess And we wish it wasn't true. We aren't proud of the mess. But the good news of our sovereign Lord is this. Our messes actually reveal God's mercies. Our messes actually reveal God's mercies. You see, at first glance, we might think of this chapter as if it doesn't fit in Genesis. You know, Chapter 37, we just saw uh, all about Joseph, and Joseph's story kind of begins, and he's sold into slavery um, by his brothers, and he's in, it says he's in Egypt in the last verse of that chapter, and then all of a sudden, the whole thing seems to shift to Judah, and we're like, well, what happened to Joseph? Why is this story here? I don't understand how it, how it makes sense, and I, I want you to see that actually this story of Judah and Tamar is vital to the overall story of what's happening with the sons of Jacob. Remember, this section isn't about this is what happens with Joseph. It's about these are the generations 
of Jacob. So it's about all of his sons. Certainly Joseph is a key figure, but his relationship with his brothers is really what brings everything full circle in the end, right? And so a few things that will help you get a little bit of context as we get started in this passage. First, I believe, I believe we should see Judah as representative of the ten brothers not named Joseph and Benjamin. So the Bible isn't going to take the time to talk about every single one of all ten brothers. So Judah kind of becomes the figurehead that, that represents the attitude and actions of all ten brothers. He's the one who led the way in selling Joseph into slavery, and we know that he will be the one from whose line King David and Jesus come. And so he is kind of the, the figurehead there. Second, I want you to, to see that Genesis 38 does not chronologically fit all between Genesis 37 and 39, okay? That might be helpful to you to kind of understand the overall story. Genesis 38 is, you know, he has three sons and they grow up to adulthood, right? So we're talking 20 plus years, and it's 22 years from when Joseph is sold into slavery to when he meets his brothers again. And so by the end of chapter 38, by the end of chapter 38, we're probably on the verge of Judah going to Egypt and meeting his brother again. Does that make sense? So these two things in a timeline are running parallel with one another, but the Bible gives us this whole story here because it's going to set up what happens when the brothers arrive. It gives us context for all 10 brothers' decisions then and their character in those later interactions. In other words, what I'm saying is we not only see God's mercy in this chapter with the characters right here, but we also, when we understand it in the greater context, see how this story actually reveals God's mercy in the larger story and how He brings that about, okay? So, with all of that context in mind, as we think about how our messes reveal God's mercies, I want to show how messes often start with what I'm calling mission drift. That's going to be the first part of the story. How messes are often corrected by righteous risk. It's going to be the middle part of the story. And how ultimately messes bring us to God's humbling mercy. It's going to be the last few verses. So mission drift. What do I mean? Mission drift is not a term that is original to me. It's something that someone else made up. It's been around for, uh, as a term for a little bit. And I'm just kind of using it because uh, it fits here. And it's the idea that an organization, especially and particularly organizations that are seen as traditionally Christian organizations in the United States, have a tendency to drift or have had a tendency to drift away from their original purpose. And so some people have done some studies in this, organizations that were created in, you know, 16, 17, 1800s, or whenever, um, all the way back. And so uh, how today they're not so Christian as they once were. At best, many of these are no longer recognizable as Christian, and at worst, some of them are actually even opposed to Christianity. So you have organizations like the YMCA that, that really, they're not very 
Christian in their actual functioning today. And you have institutions like Harvard, which were founded distinctly Christian and today are distinctly not Christian. And desire is in these organizations to grow bigger, to have more money, to gain more notoriety or influence, whatever it is that begins to pull them away, that begins to cause them to drift away from what the original purpose is, suddenly, well, I was going to say suddenly they wake up and their purpose is totally different, but that's not really how it happens, is it? It's gradual. Decade to decade, generation to generation, it starts with simple things. Well, well, you know, we're still about this mission, but like it would be good if we did this, but really what there is being disguised is a heart that actually is for their own glory and not for God's glory until suddenly you wake up one day and you realize you're not even Christian anymore as an organization. And we see this in churches and we see this in our own lives as well, right? We let other things creep in, and year by year by year goes by, and we wake up one day and we realize, what happened? I'm not actually, I'm not actually acting like a Christian in all of these different places. And this is what we see in Jacob's sons. They forget their purpose. They forget the purpose of, one, being God's people, which has more to do with the way they interact with God and live in the world than something inside of them. And two, they forget their purpose to carry on God's mission of filling the world with God's name and thus blessing the world. And so the sons of Jacob are beginning to forget this as we see in the beginning of this passage. And Judah kind of becomes the primary figure for this. They didn't Basically, they don't like the role God gives them in the story and in the world, at least in comparison to the role Joseph gets. They're not the sheaf that's bowed down to in the dream. They're not the star that gets bound down to in the dream, and they don't like it. And they begin to drift because the role God's given them isn't good enough to them. Simply put, their mission is to glorify and obey God, and that's still our mission. But they become about glorifying themselves. And so in the first 11 verses, what we see these two problems laid out. Problem one, we see in verses one through five, a failure to be and remain God's people distinct from the world. Judah goes away from his family, it says, and he makes friends with this shady Adulamite character, which is a kind of Canaanite. You know, Canaanite's kind of this broad term for all of these people groups that live in Canaan, right? His brothers, they're flawed, but at least they're God's people. But he turns his back on them and he goes away. What's more, he marries a Canaanite. And as we've noted in previous sermons, this is nearly universally condemned by God. It and he has three sons with her. And so the sons of Jacob here are seen through Judah's actions as being in grave danger, not of being exterminated by the Canaanites as we've seen previously, but, but, it, but they're in extreme danger of being assimilated into the Canaanites and into their culture. And that is mission drift. It's the subtle tactic of Satan, 
And we see it today in our inability to distinguish between, say, what is truly loving and what feels loving but is actually love of the world. We see it today in our inability to distinguish between what is biblical and what maybe feels like it's like Jesus, but is actually just swimming with the current of our culture. We get the sense that if something doesn't happen here, if something doesn't happen in this story that pulls them away from this situation, that Israelite will just become another Canaanite. The Israelite as a people group, would just be like the Adulamites. They're just a kind of Canaanite because they've been assimilated into that culture rather than what God desired, which is that for them to be distinct from that, those people groups in order that he might bless those people groups through them. So that's problem one. Problem two, a failure to fulfill God's mission, to be fruitful and multiply in order that God's name would be known and their offspring might bless the world. Verses 6 through 11, we read as this series of weird uh, events, events that are strange to us, though it would have been much more plain to the original audience. Judah's first son, Ur, marries Tamar. But it says that Ur is wicked, right? Wicked in the sight of God. And we're not told what it is that makes him wicked, but that phrase, wicked in the sight of God, is the same exact phrase that we, see back, we saw back with Noah, describing all the peoples of the earth in Noah's time. And so we can assume this is pretty wicked. And so what does God do? He does the same thing he did there. He justly puts him to death. And since Tamar had no children with Ur, it would have been the right and just thing to do in that time for the second son of Judah to bear children in Ur's stead, to continue on the family line of Jacob and of Judah and of Ur, right? And that's weird to us, but just, I'm not going to take a bunch of time to get into all of the details of that, but just understand that that would have been fairly normal procedure in most cultures in that day. Not only would this have been seen as the good and right thing to do, but also remember that David and the Messiah would come through Judah's line. And so if Ur doesn't have any children, Phonon doesn't have any children, Shalah doesn't have any children, that line ends. It's done. So what happens? Well, Anon takes measures to make sure that he doesn't have any children with Tamar. He doesn't see it as benefiting him. He sees it as benefiting his dead brother's family line. His uh, focus is so myopic, so selfish, that he can't see that his actions actually do damage to the greater people of God and to God's promises and to God's plan. He'll take Tamar for pleasure. Maybe even they have some companionship, but he refuses to fulfill God, the God-given responsibility and command that he has to be fruitful and to multiply. And it says, quote, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So wicked that God put him to death as well. Now I want to kind of, as an aside here, as an aside in, in, on this point, I want to, to, to point out that um, I don't believe the issue 
here is birth control per se. Okay, some might read this and go, well, see, like all birth control in any, you know, situation is, is, is necessarily bad, um, inherently sinful. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't believe that that is exactly what is trying to be communicated. I think what's trying to be communicated is that the heart of Onan, uh, that his tactics represented was wrong. He was unwilling to submit to God's command or to see how it glorified God to have children with Tamar or to even see that the goodness of children, period. He didn't actually believe it was best. He wanted what he wanted, his way. He was unjust in his actions towards Tamar, towards God's people. So it was, a, it was practical albeit selfishly motivated decision. But he could not understand at that moment what massive promises he was rejecting. And so on that point, I think it's easy to justify and ignore how our own hearts are out of alignment with God's commands and promises in many different places. But particularly in this one, we should consider before it's too late, how our hearts may be out of alignment with God's heart in regards to this very thing, having children. So back to the primary point. Judah is down to his youngest, who's too young to marry. So he tells Tamar to, to go as a widow uh, into his father's house, which would have been fairly, into her father's house, which would have been fairly normal, and stay there until his youngest son was older, and then, you know, he'd give, uh, the implication is, oh, then I'll give him in marriage to you, but we know from the text that he has no intention of doing so. And the issue isn't only that they are refu- refusing to fulfill the command of God to be fruitful and multiply, but they're turning ba- their back on God's promises to multiply Abraham's descendants greatly. God's people are not acting like God's people. They don't realize what they don't they don't realize that it's God's plan to bring the offspring of Abraham through the line of Judah. And I think God's purpose for us is similar but expanded in the gospel. We're still God's people meant to be distinct from the world. We're given the Holy Spirit it changes our hearts transforms us. And we're still to spread His name in the world. (laughs) The old-fashioned way is still pretty effective, if you will. But there's other ways now in Christ where we can share the gospel and God, through His Spirit, changes people's hearts and whole families that, that didn't know Christ can know Christ now. New gospel legacies can be begun in families where there wasn't a legacy. It's not just that people can be born, but they can be reborn now in Christ and brought into God's family. And so when we begin to drift off that mission, when we value our comfort over our holiness, our desires over God's commands, our convenience and gratification over seeing more know Jesus, whether that be our neighbor next to us or the kids in our own home, the the mess begins to happen. And how does God knock us back in orbit? I think that's where righteous risk comes in. 
As if this story isn't strange enough, verses 12 through 26 take it kind of to a different level, right? And the first thing that we note here is that Judah's wife has died. And then he goes to shear his sheep, which would have been a massive festival. Would have been a huge festival. All of them, everyone's coming at the same time to shear their sheep, and it's work all day, party all night kind of a thing, right? And he's with his shady friend. He just never seems to do very good things when he's hanging around with his shady friend there, the Adulamite. And when Tamar hears about it, realizing that Judah's not going to give him his youngest, give her his youngest son, she decides to do something unexpected. She gets dressed up like a prostitute. She goes out on the road where, he know, where she knows that he will come by, and she waits for him. And sure enough, when they come around, Judah decides, hey, here's a prostitute. I, my wife's been gone for a while. Yeah. And in the negotiation, he promises to pay her a goat. Now, just, just let, me, let, let that sink in for a minute. How many deceptions in this family can involve a goat and a change of clothes? I mean, think about that. Like three, four times. Like just avoid the goats, guys. <laughs> just get away from it. We didn't have the goat at the moment. And so he has to give a pledge, something that she can keep until he's able to bring payment for, for services rendered, if you will. And so she said, suggests, well, how about your signet and your cord and your staff? Now, these would have been pretty important things that a wealthy man would have and would carry around. The, the, the signet and the cord it would probably be attached around his neck. And, it, and it's a thing that he would use to seal the deal to, so everyone knows, no, no, this is a unique object that only this guy has. And so when that seals this thing, I know that this guy, this is this guy's signature on it, right? It's important. It's very important. To who he is. And it would have been very unique. And so he goes into her, he agrees, he goes into her and he goes on his way and she conceives. She goes back to her father's house, she acts like nothing happened, she puts on her widow's clothes until, well, and, and then the shady friend goes to make the, the, the deal with the goat and, you know, of course, this is what we do when we are doing stupid stuff, we send someone else to, like, complete the transaction, right? Because we can't do it ourselves. And there's no prostitute. And people are like, there's never a prostitute around here. Like, oh, this is weird. And he basically says this to his friend. Judah, Judah basically says, forget it. I tried. I tried to get the, the, the goat. She can keep the stuff because if we press into this, people are going to find out and they're going to laugh at us. I think that's telling. I think that's telling. His concern isn't doing right or wrong. His concern is his appearance in society. How do I look to the culture around me? How do all these Canaanites think about me? That's his concern. When God's people drift from the mission, when the church really gets off track, are we concerned with preserving appearances in our culture or are we willing to take righteous risks? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. 
And so we have two characters. How are we to understand them? Judah is well off. He's respected in the community. He keeps up appearances. He's an important guy. He's important enough to have a signet and cord. On the surface, he looks clean cut, but his motivations are self-gratifying. He's unjust towards Tamar. Worst of all, he has stopped caring about God's purpose and promises. He's the person who's part of God's people, who is walking away from God's people and into the world and assimilating with the world. And Tamar is just the opposite. On the surface, she's a sad and messy story. She comes from a people who are not God's people. And all we see when we look at this story is that she slept with her father-in-law. But the Bible sees her as being a part of the promises and people of God, Ruth 4.12. The Bible while not necessarily applauding her actions or her methods or her tactics, actually upholds her heart and her desires. Because she is a mess, she's from the world, and yet she is actually moving towards God. She actually wants God's purpose and plan. She wants to be a part of what God is doing in the world and in his people. And Judah, who has all of that, is trying to get out of it and assimilate into the culture. Richard Sibbs, an old pastor, he says it this way. He says, Excess of passion in opposing evil, though not to be justified, yet shows a better spirit than a calm temper where there is just cause of being moved. It is better that the water should run somewhat muddily than not run at all. Too often, we'd rather play it safe, keep up appearances, stay in a comfortable position, than passionately pursue God's kingdom and take righteous risk. We find it easy to sit on the sidelines and offer critiques on the methods of those who are actually passionately in the game than get in the game ourselves. I've done it. We all do it at some point. We're more concerned that if we say that biblical truth to our non-Christian neighbor or coworker, they might be offended and they might reject us, or even worse, they might lash out to, at us in some way, rather than stepping up with righteous risk, trusting that even if we don't say it all the right way, even if we put our foot in our mouth at some point, God can still use it if we desire what God desires. When someone who calls themselves a Christian or a pastor says or does something that is morally and theologically wrong in, in, a, in a significant way, and when someone calls them out in a way that might be less significantly wrong, we get more riled up about the responder and how, they, how we don't like their methods than the thing that is objectively more wicked that they're speaking out against. Because we make following God into looking a certain way rather than actually loving God rather than loving the world. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should want to make things more messy. Like, do not hear me incorrectly. I am not saying we go out, you know, like a bull in a china shop and purposefully just make a mess because Cody said messes reveal God's mercies, <laughs> okay? Non-messes can reveal God's mercies too, okay? So, that, like, that is the ultimate goal. But what I'm saying is this. We can be so afraid that we might possibly make a mess that we never actually do the righteous things that God is calling us to. And how can we stand by when we know that inaction is sinful and unbiblical and do nothing that, that, we, that we know will be wrong because we're afraid that if we do something, we might get it wrong in some way. That doesn't make logical sense, friends. And I do it all the time. And I'm sure you can think of times when you do it as well. We've got to change that. We're to be like Christ. Sanctification matters. I'm not saying we should try to make things messy. I'm saying we already are messy. So how about we try to pursue what God wants for us? what God is calling us to, rather than being afraid of messing it up. Because, friends, because even when we mess it up, God has a truckload of mercy for His people. He has a truckload of mercy for those who are pursuing Him and desire what His Word desires, what He's communicated that He wants for us. God has a truckload of mercy. And that's, that's our last section here, humbling mercy. Three months later, Judah finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant. She can't hide it anymore. She's technically engaged to Judah's son, and, and she's pregnant, and that looks bad for Judah, right? He loves his appearance. And so what does he say? Bring her out and burn her alive, right? Well, gosh, this really amped up quick. Now, I want you to understand that according to the law later in Deuteronomy, Judah could demand stoning to death in a case of adultery during betrothal. That is, if it was actually a fair case, which this is not. But death by burning was reserved, even in the law, for the most very specific and rare cases. His reaction, by any account, is extreme. So now we've reached the critical point when everything is such a big mess, as messy as it can be, and it, and it seems hopeless. And Tamar says, I'm pregnant by the man to whom, as she's being drug out to be burned alive, mind you, it says, as she's being brought out, she sends these things. She's ready to go. She's got them wrapped up. She knows the moment's going to come. She sends them and she says, hey, to the person that these belong, that's the person who got me pregnant. Could you identify them for me? Imagine Judah unwrapping this package. I'm just, this is the way I see it. I don't know this is how it happened. I'm just imagining this. He's unwrapping this package. I'll find out who this guy is. He doesn't even know. I sold my brother into slavery. You don't know who I am, what I'll do to you? And he unwraps it. And he sees what it is. And he says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. Suddenly everything 
clicks into place. He understands his own faults. He understands his own, you know, her motivations. She might not have done everything up to code, but his sins were far worse than hers. And I know, I know that oftentimes people will say, no, sin is sin, and every, every sin is equal. And, and in terms of whether or not a sin uh, can damn us to hell, a small sin or a big sin, it, it produces that same effect. But I want you to see here's another example of the Bible where the Bible says, no, some sins are in fact actually worse than other sins. They just are. She gives birth to two sons. Friends, two sons that replace Judah's two wicked sons who God put to death. And Perez forces his way out first, just as Tamar forced herself into the line of Abraham, the line of David, the line of Christ. Here's the point I want to make. Sometimes we see humiliation and shame as something that does not belong with grace and mercy. Like humiliation and shame are over here and grace and mercy are over there and they don't belong together. They can't mix. And, and, and it doesn't, they don't belong together when someone is shamed and humiliated unjustly like Tamar is for doing nothing that God said is actually shameful. However, though Judah may not have felt humiliation and shame until the moment he opened up that package, it was his sinful conduct for years and years that was what was truly shameful and humiliating. It was not being confronted with the truth. It was not what he felt in the moment when he opened up that package. It was what he did in his sin that was shameful and humiliating. The shame is in the sin, not in the confronting and not in the confessing. And when we sin, it is the sin itself that brings humiliation. Even if we are so hardened by sin that in the moment we fail to realize how humiliating it actually is. Tamar isn't wrong to confront Judah's sin and point it out in a crafty way. And we recognize that when we read this story, but too often we don't recognize that in our own lives and situations. Someone confronts us and we feel ashamed. They confront us rightly about sin that we actually did and we feel ashamed and we say, man, I feel bad now. You did something wrong to me. No, they didn't. The wrong thing was the sin you did. They did something right to you because you weren't feeling shame that you should have been feeling. Shame that would bring you to a place of repentance and actually receiving the grace of God. You can't have grace if you didn't point of grace is that you did sin. Or else how is it grace and mercy? God doesn't bring us to a place of humiliation or shame in some capricious way like a bully who depances you in front of your class or something. Right? I remember when I was in college, I was, we were working out at the K-State Rec, there's all these windows, glass windows, and all the girls would stand and do the treadmills up in the front window, and you could see everyone coming in and out. 
And this friend said, hey, hey, today, just wait until I see what I, you know, wait till you see what I do to my, our, one of our friends. And he's walking up the stairs to the wreck and he depances him right there. You know, it's like, that's humiliating. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's humiliating, right? For no good reason. But when we're in sin and someone confronts us, what we need to realize is our pants are already down. They're merely pointing it out. Hey, you might want to put those up. Maybe that illustration only works for middle school boys. I don't know. Listen, either... God doesn't bring us to a place of humiliation or humbling or shame for no reason just because he wants to be mean. He does it either to see justice done in that situation or to bring us into his mercy. So we realize just how sinful we were and just how much God loves us anyways. You still love me, God, even though I screwed up this bad? And on this occasion, he, he does both. He brings justice in the situation between Judah and Tamar, and his, he brings mercy to both of them, correcting Judah and allowing Tamar, even though her methods are imperfect, to actually become part of the lineage of Christ. He rewards her heart that while her actions aren't all nice and clean and perfect in every way, her heart desires to be a part of what God is doing in the world and in history, and she rewards that. That is his gracious mercy. Despite the mess of Judah's disobedience and Tamar's messy response, God's mercy is seen in both of their lives and for eternity as God keeps his promises. Their messes reveal God's mercies. And friends, so it is with us. Listen, if you're like Judah and you look all right, but you know you're off, you know you've gotten off track, friends, confess your sins before it finds you out on its own, and your sins will find you out. I promise you. Don't be afraid. There's no shame in confession, there's no shame in repentance. There's only shame in the sin itself. Confession and repentance are all joy. You only find God's mercy in confession and repentance. If you're like Tamar, you feel like you've been on the outside, but you believe in God's promises. You want to be a part of what God is doing in his people. You trust him. Your faith is in Christ. Don't be afraid to humbly pursue Christ and his righteousness, even if you don't understand how to do it all right now. His grace is sufficient if you don't do everything just right. So I'm not saying make messes on purpose. I'm not saying that we should pursue making more messes. You pursue making less messes if possible. As your pastor, I would prefer less messes, right? But I am saying don't let a little mess keep you from pursuing God and what He wants for you and for the world 
because our messes reveal God's mercies. So friends, if we're going to make pancakes, we can't be afraid of messes. So crack some eggs. Let me pray. Lord,